Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent. I'm going to start our recording for our podcast portion. So we also record the first half hour of these guided discussions for people who aren't yet on Clubhouse. If you're listening to this on a podcast and you're not on Clubhouse and you're interested in knowing how, please reach out to me and I'll help you get on. So maybe we'll start with what you do with evaluation. Let's start with evaluation. Like, do you think you do anything particularly well in evaluation or is there a issue with evaluation that you're trying to solve? I mean, obviously we could talk about these topics for for all day, but um, let's at least give a survey course and then maybe click off to things that we would be able to talk about more in the future. So any one of you guys that wants to chime in on either something you think you do well with evaluation or something that you're trying to solve in evaluation, um, just give your name and a quick intro and then we'll just go from there. So Jamie, why don't you, uh, why don't you lead us off? Yeah, I will gladly jump in on this one. Uh, Jamie Shore, I'm the chief procurement officer for the state of the fantastic state of Maine. Um, I'm going to actually throw it out there with a challenge that we're having around evaluations. And let me just caveat by saying an evaluation to me when I'm, when I'm in this context of this conversation means um, proposals are submitted in relation to an RFP, typically for services, could be IT related, but I'm going to leave commodities and like the low cost scoring to the side. So this is really the subjective scoring and consensus scoring. Um, we struggle with fairly and accurately taking notes across bids. And so when we have um, our individual evaluators, they take a look at all of the proposals, they take some initial individual notes and um, maybe some questions, some interesting thoughts, positives, negatives about the proposal, but it's really meant to inform the conversation. And then we have the consensus scoring where all of the individual evaluators get together and they um, they talk about what they've read and they try to assign points. And ultimately we come out with a winner, right? That's just the, the basis of an RFP evaluation. The struggle, and we've, we've had some litigation on this um, in the past few years, is that one bidder may mention something that seems really interesting and it ends up in the notes and another bidder may not mention it. And we've been challenged numerous times that it comes across as we are appearing unfair from a document perspective. So I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna leave it right there and I'm curious as to what others think about that um, and what guidance you would provide to either me and or my team for how to make that a little bit more fair. This is Jenny Hederman. I'm State Risk Counsel, the Office of the Comptroller in Massachusetts. And Jamie, that's a really great question and one that we have um, not really struggled with because in our process, there was a big issue for years about the notes that, that procurement participants take being a public record. And we had taken the position that the individual notes that a person took in the evaluation were not a public record. They were their personal notes that they took and they would not be included in the consensus scoring unless the individual brought them into the consensus scoring. And that there was a centralized, um, when you ask a question, you tell your vendors that 
you know, we're not going to ask ancillary questions unless we're clarifying the question that was asked and that it's up to the vendor to provide whatever information they think is valid to answer the question. So you don't get into that issue of something coming up with one vendor and not another because you put the onus on the vendor to supply the information to the question. So as long as you're answer, um, asking the exact same questions to every single vendor and the follow-up questions are clarifying what they've already identified, then we found that that doesn't raise that question. And then all of those notes are taken as part of the consensus voting and the individual notes that come up are not included. So I'm not sure if, if that assists at all, but that's worked actually fairly well for us. Jenny out. Yeah, Jenny, let me just ask a quick follow-up. I think I heard you say that the individual notes would not be subject to FOA. Is that accurate? Exactly, because what we didn't want is we didn't want to get into litigation with people taking notes and they were going through and saying, you know, I don't like this section of the procurement. And then for another vendor not having any notes on that section and that being used against either the individual or the state in the procurement process. So what we said is that the notes are personal notes under the public records law and that unless the individual raises an issue such as in this section, I was concerned about the vendor because they were missing this or this section seemed to be less robust than other vendors or this vendor did not answer this specific question, that, that would, all of those comments would be brought into the consensus scoring when you were evaluating each vendor. And at that point, it was not recorded by individual, it was recorded as a comment. So then you wouldn't get into a fight over an individual appearing to be unfair to a certain vendor or predisposed to a certain vendor because it was all done as part of the consensus discussion. And that seemed to alleviate some of the issues with the back and forth of what the personal notes were. Jenny, oh, that, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm curious as to what others can share that would be helpful. Thank you, Jenny. I'll jump in. Kristen Webb, Shelby County um, Administrator of Purchasing. And interesting, um, we recently had conversations around uh, notes and comments. Uh, our practice has not been to include that. Um, each individual um, scorer, they get their scorecard and they score accordingly to the requirements and everything that's set out. Um, and then obviously there's a um, compilation of all those scores come together to make that master score. And so we have not included comments. Uh, what we have done is to ensure that if there's a debriefing request um, from a vendor is that the uh, scores are prepared to be able to answer questions as to the justification for why they scored a certain way for that particular bidder of record. Um, so similar to Jenny, we have not really included um, notes and comments as part of um, the scoring evaluation uh, and probably a little bit more stringent than what I heard Jenny state, but it does get away from, um, you know, personal comments not being consistent across the board or more heavily uh, notated in some ways with one score versus another one. Um, and so it, for us, we really haven't run into any issues in the way we uh, evaluate. It's just strictly based on the, the um, line items of, of the scorecard um, and the, the weights that are there and the scores that are given and then that compilation at the end. So one thing I've seen a lot more of um, employed across the board is this approach to adjectival ratings, which is um, saying we're going to define what 
unacceptable to superior is, and then tell the evaluators as they are working through the process that they need to consistently come back to a definition so that they are not just saying, well, there's a range from one to five, and this feels like a three to me, and this feels like a four to me. Um, another example is for, uh, I've seen for references that they're scoring that the references have to both be recent and relevant. And then there's, again, fairly specific definitions on what it is, just trying to protect our evaluators from having points that just really reflect more of an emotional response as opposed to something that can be consistent. So are you guys, Jonathan, are you guys employing anything in that shape or are you interested in it or anyone else who is doing that as an, as a practice around evaluation? Yes, it's definitely something that we've had to work through. Uh, I'm guilty of it myself. Whenever I build an RFP, my my the way I think about scoring is I like to have a you know a score from zero to three, and I myself have a very I feel like I have a you know a good definition in my mind of what makes up a zero, what makes up a three, what's a two, what's a two and a half, etc. But there's definitely an opportunity for adjectival. It lets you um, have a to use, you know, the word that we use in Louisiana as well, a, a consensus for what each of those scores means. Um, there are people like me who, um, you know, believe that something that meets minimum specifications should not get a perfect score. There are other people that believe that anything that meets specifications should get full points available. Uh, I like reserving full points for something that blows me away, something I've never seen before. Um, so you, you just need consensus. You know, there are multiple, uh, there's a variety of valid approaches. Um, just everybody needs to be working from the same page of the hymnal when it comes to that so that you truly can get to consensus. You're not mashing together somebody else's two and somebody else's three and somebody else's four and hoping that that averages to a three that everybody else agrees with. Um, besides that, I think our process is quite similar to what was outlined um, with Maine and Massachusetts and Shelby County. I've also seen um, some efforts to to have some some ways to adjust the the evaluation points in 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 a planned way. So, for example, saying that there would be a rescoring after um, orals, or that orals would have their own scoring, something that tries to make the evaluation um, reflect increasing knowledge by whatever construct we have in the middle to be able to learn more. So does anybody have anything that they're doing that is creative on how you have, maybe you score the response, but then if you learn more through the process, through demos or through discussion, that somehow that as long as the vendors know that's the rule of the game, then, then they know how to work the game. So, or, I mean, work within your, your construct. Is anybody doing anything to try to, try to flow towards scoring as you learn more. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, so there's the compilation scoring after everyone scores and then they have the opportunity to do interviews, of course, with each vendor um, to present information that was not already presented. Um, And then if, adjustments need to occur after that, then that does happen. Uh, but of course, the the uh, bidders are made aware of that on the front end in the RFP or RFQ document. Um, they know that the interview process could potentially occur, and it gives them the opportunity to shine a little brighter uh, if the scoring committee needs that additional input. And we also do that in Massachusetts. Sorry, Jamie. Um, 
you know, the interview process sometimes will have the majority of the points that your initial scores are going to get you into the room, but that the interview or the demo, for example, if you're doing IT, um, really is going to be the main part of the selection. And for interviews, the recommendation that we've always made is to interview the key personnel who are going to be working on the contract, not the salespeople. Because what we've found is the salespeople, they'll give you a sales response. And we, we really want to meet the people that we're going to be working in the trenches with. And that's really important because if they're not responsive or we don't really think that they understand you know, what the, the rules are and we don't get a good feeling about it, then that's going to really play into the interview scores that we get. And the other part is, you know, we're looking for best value. So the goal is to get the best overall contract for the state that we're working in. So we always have best value language that our choice may not be the highest score or the lowest cost, that we're really looking for the best value and the best deal. And we, we did that in our procurement rules, which gives us a little bit more flexibility because sometimes we'll get a really low bidder, but when we actually challenge them during the interview, they don't have the expertise or they really aren't offering the best deal. So that interview process really is important as Kristen said. And off to you, Jamie. Well, Jenny, I just want to acknowledge, acknowledge and put it out there. I think we all need to give a round of applause to bidders that come in and turn their um, demo, if you will, into a sales pitch, right? It's somehow, some way, when they're giving a demo for an RFP evaluation committee, without fail, bidders are notorious for weaving in that sales pitch. And oftentimes, as procurement officials, it's our, it's not even our job, it's our duty to step in and say, stop pitching us, right? Answer the question, show us the demo for what you already pitched us, um, and just take a pause. And I, I just want to comment on that quickly because as procurement officials, public specifically public procurement officials, that is a critical point in time when the process can go a little bit sideways uh, because we are opening up that dialogue. It's a crucial dialogue, but it's, it is a way that we need to try to control it. And if we think back to the, the question that Dustin asked around process, how do we how do we make sure that we are fairly engaging in the process and engaging in the conversation? What I've seen in our state, um, we're a hybrid, non-centralized state. So we do have a central procurement office, but we don't perform all of the RFPs that are submitted to us. And so we allow our agencies to perform the RFP process. And uh, what we find is that the evaluators and the agencies are scared to write down on the notes what their true impression was from the demo, right? Let's just be honest and put it out there. What the bidder did right, wrong, didn't answer the question or did answer the question. Um, so Jenny, I think that's a really critical point. And Dustin, I want to just one other thing that Kristen mentioned, we could spend an entire session on debriefings. So I would just put that out there as a future <laughs> conversation for this group. Sure. I mean, as somebody who's been more on the supplier side, even though I only work for buy side, the the stances that people take on debriefs directly affect how many FOIAs that you get, right? If you just tell me what I need to know in order to improve, then then I'll take it and move on. But if you if you don't have a good debrief process, then your FOIA account is going to go way up because people 
still are going to want the information and it's just a waste of time. So let's, let's move on to some of the negotiation. Um, obviously 15 minutes for evaluation is, um, is funny because there's a hundred things still to talk about there, but, um, so, um, so on negotiation, different states have different approaches for what it means to negotiate. Like the uh, state of Hawaii says that they can't negotiate, but they can clarify. Uh, the state of Missouri doesn't have the ability to individually negotiate, but they um, then run a series of BAFO events to basically negotiate through repeated um, clarif- uh, BAFOs if they need to, and then some just go directly into negotiation. So where's what are your stances on what is or isn't in bounds in negotiation and what do you, what is different for you between um, the period that is, that is everything that leads up to negotiation and whatever your negotiation activities are? So I can jump in. This is Jenny. Um, what we do with our, and we call it a request for response process is we, we tell the vendors that you need to include everything in your response and that there may not be an opportunity for a BAFO afterwards. There may or may not. So they won't get the chance to add additional information. So we normally ask them to provide any additional information that they think will be helpful, any additional services um, and include any additional costs so that we don't get into the situation of having to ask for a BAFO unless we, we really feel that it's needed. And as far as negotiation, we also have the ability to negotiate in the interview. So we state that if we want to negotiate terms, because we may get down to the top three, and it may be an issue of price, that they all are fairly comparable, but we ask them, how willing are you to negotiate the price? And we ask them right in the meeting. So we have them include either their attorneys or somebody who can um, represent them. So we find out how willing they are to negotiate what they've given us in the event it comes down to a final two or a final three. And that always gives us a good indication of what we're going to be dealing with if we actually select them. Because if we find vendors are going to keep us on the hook for six weeks with protracted negotiations, that's not gonna be a good deal and it's not a good indication of what kind of partner they're gonna be with us. So we do use that kind of benefit in the negotiation process as part of the interview. Jenny out. I think it's a good practice um, for us and what I've found, I have seen that particular practice for us, our policy requires that we actually do an award or an intent to award before we're actually able to move into negotiation. So I definitely can see how um, that runs us into the potential to have these long negotiating periods. Um, it could throw a project off timeline, that kind of thing. So I can appreciate the approach, Jenny, that you mentioned where um, the negotiations or the conversation about it is taking place before an intent award is even issued. Um, but we're kind of locked in today um, with our policy that negotiations actually take place after the intent award. Um, and obviously we're looking forward to be in the best interest of our entity um, while working with them. But if we do get to an impasse, which I have seen, if we do get to an impasse, then obviously we're looking to move on to the next um, responsive bidder um, that was in the process and we do a resend. So that's usually how we handle our negotiations. So Jenny and Kristen, let me just ask because you two have already spoken. Um, and for those on the call that maybe don't actively negotiate every day, 
is the negotiations that you have in your state as glamorous as say what you see in Hollywood, like wedding <laughs> crashers or the movie Lincoln when Abe Lincoln is negotiating, right? It's, to- it's just, at least in the state of Maine, I miss some of that like glamor and the studio lights and the directors. It's kind of boring. I don't know. What do you think? I would agree. <laughs> uh, definitely I, I not like camera action. I think I'm going to take that that little sound clip of you saying it's kind of boring. And I think I'm going to turn that into a little thing on my roadcaster so that I can. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the first one to say, I love <laughs> negotiating, right? I think it's, I mean, it feels a little bit like you're just going in for the win, but it's so boring, right? It's terms and conditions. It's, Hey, can you, can you drop it by five bucks? Can you do that? I mean, I'm oversimplifying obviously. Um, but the point of it, for those of you that are listening, um, maybe that are, are in this in the weeds every single day, like some of us are, we make the award in our state. We are a BAFO state, um, so we try really hard not to negotiate outside the scope of what we have put out in the solicitation. Um, we do obviously go back and we try to negotiate cost down as much as possible while not changing the scope. Um, but again, it's a it's it's not like a wedding crasher scenario. It's not like the president, you know, trying to negotiate the 13th amendment. This is very much so the, the start of a partnership between a public entity and a private entity. Um, and you are starting to have the communication to build your relationship together. Um, so that's really at the very heart of negotiation. It's not a combative scenario. It is the start of a very collaborative, good working partnership, probably 95% of the time. I just want to say, Jamie, I really appreciate you pointing out that that really is kind of the initiation of the relationship of the partnership. A lot of times we don't look at it like that. It may just look at, oh, another paperwork process. And then once we execute, now we're in partnership. Um, But I can appreciate you pointing out that it actually starts at that point. Absolutely. And if anybody does have a super awesome negotiation going on where it feels like Hollywood, I would love to be the fly on the wall. You know, send me the invitation. I just want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, Jamie, no Hollywood here. It's 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 similar to, um, you know, it's kind of like rooms from the 80s and 90s that are decked out in those old padded pink chairs. So, yeah, no. <laughs> but to your to your point about the, the, you know, I really think you speak to the balance that you have to have once you get to the negotiation phase. And this ties in the um, earlier conversation about the evaluation criteria is that, if you are so rigid in your evaluation criteria, I feel like once you get to that negotiation phase with maybe one or two vendors, depending on how your statutes work, um, you kind of don't leave a lot on the table to even be negotiated. So I guess that kind of that next step of that conversation is how do we balance those two phases and make sure that they can interconnect with each other so that the negotiation can feel successful and even feel fruitful for both parties, you know, by not being too rigid on the upfront. So if anybody has ideas on that. So I can, I can jump into this and that's such a great question. I think the best advice that I would give, and I know in Massachusetts in our procurement guidance, we spend a lot of time um, asking all the questions on the front end. And my recommendation is get people involved before you even go out to bid. And it's, it's not just the procurement people, it's the operational people who are going to be ac- actually doing the contract. It's the lawyers who are going to be reviewing and potentially negotiating and get them in all in a room, fiscal staff, operational, 
everybody and ask them the questions. What are all the things that you anticipate that could go wrong in this contract? If there's an emergency, if there's a pandemic, if there's a service outage, because so many people want this really nice relationship, but they fail to ask the really critical questions of what can go wrong. If you ask what can go wrong, and then you ask what, is the, what are the critical things that this contract needs to be able to provide, then that was gonna build a better procurement document. So it's gonna make it easier to negotiate because you've already asked all these questions in the document and you've asked the bidder to respond. How do you deal with an outage? How do you deal with this? So all of that is thought ahead of time and part of the negotiation. Jenny out. Yeah, and Jenny, I think the important, um, one important thing with negotiation, right, is we still need to be in the box of what we bid, right? I mean, because I think the number one way that negotiations can go sideways is if um, a vendor didn't respond or responded with a high price because term and condition seven was onerous. And then later we negotiate out term and condition seven. I think we open ourselves up to protest that says what you awarded is not what you bid. And so I do think that's important to be able to uh, have vendors respond that if they're going to take issues with terms and conditions that they identify it up front and maybe describe why, and then the state can have the, the option to be able to say, well, I'm going to come back out with a BAFO to take that out. So when I was with Texas, for example, we did a bid on document imaging services and found that uh, one of the, the, the price offerings that we'd given was asking for a quality assurance, but the vendors, a couple of the vendors said, well, the way that you've described this other project, I have to do QA over there. So you're basically pricing it twice. And so once I saw that was a pattern, I did a BAFO back out that took that out in order to clarify the price. If I had just negotiated that with one vendor, I think rightly so, they could have said that we were not giving access to, to all of it. So it's, it's a blend of, of um, being agile and being effective. And I think in another session, you know, we've done some fairly specific things. Um, we did a thing for the state of Florida that use a very specific form of a, of a racy chart, but a very um, specific and modified one. So that's pretty geeky, but it is, I think, a very interesting negotiation tactic. So I think maybe we could have a follow-on on some of the negotiation things as well. So um, to those of you in the audience, uh, please think of, uh, if you have any questions, please go ahead and raise your hand. We'll start bringing some people up in a second. As I said, we're recording a podcast, and so we're finishing off um, a, a guided portion of it so that we can get some thoughts in and, and make them available to people who aren't on Clubhouse. So any last thoughts on this topic uh, before from any of our panelists before we start letting some people come up? I, I'll throw this in there. And it, it, some it may be very elementary, but I think it's a really, really key piece to making sure your evaluations and negotiations um, can go off kind of with the, without a hitch, right? Because that's where we're shooting for. Um, but making all the expectations clear on the front end, I think when building those solicitations, uh, making sure the expectations are set out as comprehensively, but as succinctly as possible, definitely minimizes uh, hiccups down the road. So I know we kind of jumped right in, but when I first thought about the topic, if you can build out your, um, your expectations clearly and your requirements, uh, your negotiations and your, um, your evaluations generally, um, can go off uh, without a hitch and, and be pretty efficient. So I just want to leave that um, and making sure you really know what you're going after uh, when you're building those out. Mm -hmm.
Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent.